Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we head to Australia to find out why so many whales have been involved in mass strandings this week and what's being done to rescue them. We learn about a surge in demand for rare banknotes and coins featuring the likeness of the late Queen Elizabeth II and why some of the most coveted are in fact Canadian. We speak to an expert in Russian domestic politics about Vladimir Putin's decision to mobilize hundreds of thousands of new soldiers for his war in Ukraine. It sparked protests in dozens of cities and seen men fleeing to try to cross the border. But first, Atlantic Canada is bracing tonight for a storm already being called historic. Hurricane Fiona is barreling towards the region, packing very high winds and huge amounts of rain. We find out why it's packing such a powerful punch and how communities are preparing to brave the storm. Fiona is picking up strength as it heads towards Bermuda tomorrow, or nearby at least, before churning towards Atlantic Canada over the weekend, bringing with it high winds, very high winds, and very heavy rain. Philip Papin at the National Hurricane Centre in the U.S. says Fiona has strengthened considerably as it grinds northwards across the Atlantic. It's located... uh a few hundred miles to the southwest of Bermuda, and it is now moving towards the uh, north at 10 miles an hour, although we're expecting it to turn to the north-northeast and northeast over the next uh, day or so. Forecasters say Fiona is shaping up to be a historic storm this weekend when it will blast through Atlantic Canada and eastern Quebec. Nova Scotia's Municipal Affairs Minister says this is expected to be a significant weather event for that province. All questions have been removed as to whether this storm will happen. We are now certain. Fiona will impact our province and it has the potential to be very dangerous. Impacts are projected to be felt across the province. Every Nova Scotian should be preparing today and bracing for impact. Fiona is expected to reach Nova Scotia waters by tomorrow night before passing through the eastern mainland part of the province. It is then forecast to hit Cape Breton and Prince Edward Island on Saturday and Quebec's lower north shore and southeastern Labrador early Sunday. Well, joining me now with more, and this is Carmen Hart. She's a senior meteorologist with the Canadian Hurricane Centre, and she speaks to us tonight from Dartmouth in Nova Scotia. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. This this appears to be a really fearsome, fearsome storm coming our way. What makes it different from all the other storms that we've read so much about in the past when it's as it arrives in Atlantic Canada? Uh, so all the ingredients are there for Fiona to have a really powerful impact. Um, it's a large storm. Uh, our sea surface temperatures are above average for, for the season. Um, so that adds more uh, energy to the storm. Uh, and the other thing is it's going to combine with a uh, another system, another weather system that's coming off the continent. And so these systems are going to combine their energy. And so that's what's going to give us so much impact. It's also just looking at the modeling. It's shocking just how big it is. Yeah, that's right. It's a very big system. Um, Already we've got tropical storm force winds over a diameter of uh, over 300 kilometers. um, And that is expected to expand as it approaches Atlantic Canada. I know you never like to use terms like worst or biggest or more, most fearsome, but this one looks like it could be up there with some of the record ones that we that we remember from the past, uh, the wands and so on. Yeah, I, and actually, I think we feel pretty comfortable saying it's going to be one of the most impactful storms for Atlantic Canada, um, and definitely comparisons to Juan in 2003, and a little bit more recently, Igor, uh, which affected uh, Newfoundland in 2010. Those were the 
two really most impactful ones in the past 20 years. And it looks like this is going to be up there with those two. Tell me a bit about what, what exactly that means in terms of wind speeds and rainfall, because the numbers are, are quite, quite incredible. They're quite, they're very high. Yeah, so in terms of wind speeds, we are expecting the hurricane force winds uh, with this system to remain. Uh, currently, the system is a category four hurricane with uh, wind speeds over 200 kilometers per hour. Uh, we're expecting that to diminish a little bit, but that again, that's that's all relative because we're still expecting once it gets to our region um, to have the winds in the range of over 120 kilometers per hour, closer to 150 kilometers per hour. So that's a high category one strength or maybe even close to a category two strength. So those are very impactful winds. Um, and like I said, because it's such a large storm, the ex aerial extent of those winds is going to be very large, could be um, hundreds of kilometers, uh, like we are seeing right now, um, for the tropical storm force winds. And for the rain, because I've heard mentions of 150 millimeters, maybe as up high as 200 millimeters. That's an awful lot of rain in a short period of time. It definitely is. So just to give you some perspective, um, Halifax's monthly rainfall for September averages around 100 millimeters um, across the Maritimes. That, that's a good number for average for the entire month. Uh, and we are expecting rainfalls in the triple digits, so over 100, uh, across a lot of the Maritimes and Eastern Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, and as far as the higher numbers, uh, I, I would expect over 150 millimeters pockets in the two to 300 millimeter range. So that is a lot of rain to come down in a period of 24 hours or so. Yeah, so what are we looking at in terms of timing? Uh, I gather it's sort of Friday night into Saturday through Saturday. Is that right? Yeah, the timing is a little bit tricky because remember I mentioned that we're, we're talking about two storms merging. Um, so actually the first small well, storm, it's not a storm. The first system which is approaching us is um, just a regular frontal system coming across the, the continent. Um, and that's gonna start bringing shower, actually it already started bringing showers into the Western Maritimes uh, uh, today. So as that moves um, into uh, the rest of Eastern Canada tonight and tomorrow, and then Fiona, uh, the rain from Fiona is just gonna sort of continue. So we're gonna have rain today and tomorrow, and then that's gonna intensify sort of around midnight, uh, overnight between Friday and Saturday. And that's when we're expecting the heaviest rain. So the, the biggest impacts um, are gonna be with the heaviest rain starting around midnight Friday night and going um, tapering off during the day Saturday. Um, and the winds, the uh, highest winds will be around that time as well. So even though the rain is starting uh, earlier, um, we're expecting the biggest impacts through the night Saturday, uh, through the night Friday into Saturday and during the day on Saturday. I know people often see hurricane. We think of the U.S., we think of the Caribbean, we think of how bad a hurricane can be. And then when it descends into a tropical storm, we sort of think, oh, it's done. And that's not really right, is it? From meteorologically, meteorologically, it's not really correct to think of it that way. Well, actually, a tropical storm um, will have uh, uh, weaker winds than a hurricane. But what we're talking about now is a post-tropical storm. So a post-tropical storm is a storm that used to be a hurricane, but it lost uh, enough of its tropical characteristics. And those can be as strong as, uh, as hurricanes. So a lot of it is um, technical. Um, but in this case, we're, so we're having a hurricane. We're expecting it to lose some of its tropical characteristics, of course, as it leaves the tropics and enters the mid-latitudes, but it's going to maintain the strength um, and the impacts of a hurricane because the wind speeds are still going to be um, of those uh, of hurricane strength and higher. 
Uh, Carmen, you're right in the middle of this, of course. You're, I know this is your job, but you're also right there. Uh, what's the mood like and, and, and how are people getting ready for this? Well, this is something I've learned. Um, I've been working as a meteorologist uh, for 15 years and I've worked all across the country. And I've noticed coast to coast Canadians are very weather informed um, and very weather prepared. And that is a really good thing because uh, everybody's been tuning into the forecast. Everyone's talking about it and everyone is out preparing. Uh, and so I think at this point, uh, people are generally as ready as they can be, um, but people are starting to, the, people are starting to be nervous um, for sure out east and uh it's going to be a big one um, and there's definitely going to be some major impacts and we're going to feel it. And I, I think um, we're going to be talking about this one for a long time to come. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, this stuff, well, you, you, you haven't, uh, you're, you're not, you're not sort of, there's nothing equivocal about what you're saying. It's pretty straight up. You, you, you have a good idea of what's coming. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think our forecasts have gotten um, very good. And I think the forecasts are very good personally. Um, of course, you'll never know the exact detail. Um, we're going to have pockets with higher rainfall amounts and lower rainfall amounts. That's just the nature of weather. And it's also the geography of the land that, that you know, the rain falls on or, or the wind hits. Um, but, but what we can tell you is that like these impacts are just going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be the extremes. They're going to be the extremes that a lot of us have seen in our lifetimes or, or you know, close to those extremes. Carmen Hart, I wish you uh, and the entire community the best of luck, and thank you so much. Thank you. You're wondering how communities across a vast stretch of that part of the country are preparing from New Brunswick to Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, they're bracing for the impacts of this post-tropical storm, packing winds of up to 200 kilometers an hour, can you imagine, dropping as much as 200 millimeters of rain. So how are they getting ready? to brave this monster storm. Joining me now is Jim Parsons. He is the mayor of Cornerbrook in Newfoundland on the west coast of the province. Thanks for your time tonight. Oh, thank you. So, I mean, this looks like a pretty ominous storm. I know you're used to some bad weather, but this one uh, this one looks looks bad. What, what are you hearing and what are you preparing for? Yeah, I mean, you're hearing, uh, you know, when they use words like record lows and things like that, uh, uh, it can be a bit spooky for sure. Uh, there's also, of course, a lot of unknown. The uh, the, the, the path of this thing is not an exact science. And so uh, we are uh, we are just, uh, you know, uh, waiting and seeing a little bit. What have you been doing? I know there's been some preparations going on, which is always the case. What have you been doing in Cornerbrook to get ready? Yeah, we, we, we don't have uh, uh, an easy go when it comes to our winters, of course, in particular. Uh, we're used to dealing with, uh, you know, rainfalls and, uh, and lots of wind and that kind of thing, especially in winter. Uh, so, uh, you know, dealing with flooding and that kind of thing has been become the norm really in the last few years. We are definitely seeing the effects of climate change in our area. And we're right on the cusp of that, uh, that freeze thaw there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're seeing rain uh, a lot more than we used to and some more severe uh, conditions. So, yeah, we're, uh, we're batting down the hatches. We have a team that really uh, knows where the problem areas are. And, uh, yeah, they, they uh, you know, we're doing things like filling sandbags now. Uh, getting them ready for problem areas and also for our residents uh, as they have uh, flood uh, flooding and water going on their property where it shouldn't go. Um, of course, we're clearing out our storm drains and our head walls for our storm sewer system, uh, making sure they're free of debris and that everything can get through. Um, and as well, we're doing a lot of tree trimming uh, this time. We expect uh, a lot of wind. Maybe the wind might be a bigger problem than the rain this time. Uh, so uh, we have a very green city with a lot of big mature trees um, 
and there's a lot of leaves on those trees. They're not off yet. So uh, tree trimming has been a big part of the prep this week. Yeah, yeah, I guess the time of year makes it challenging too, because it's almost like you're getting a big winter storm in September. Yeah, and the only good thing is, I guess, is that uh, when we do get the, you know, when we get 30 or 50 millimeters of rain uh, in winter, of course, we're dealing with ice and uh, and and, th- and the slush and uh, freezing, and then of course uh, melting, which uh, compounds the problem. Um, we have a very hilly uh, landscape here. The city is uh, is built in a bowl, sort of. Uh, so it's uh, you're either going uphill or downhill everywhere, which is great for for clearing out water, but it can also mean very strong uh, 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 water on property, uh, carving out a path uh, that it's going to take, and uh, you need to be able to uh, to redirect that water and um, you know keep it in the storm sewer system or on the roads in the in the gutters where it should be, and not uh, you know digging out people's property or or overtaking our our brooks and our uh, our headwalls. Which could be tough when we were looking at one point about 150 millimeters in some places, maybe 200 in the worst hit areas. I don't think Corner Brook's in that uh, that st- in that path, but still it could be bad. And you mentioned, of course, the winds could be really high too. So it's a double whammy that you're facing. And I guess it's, I mean, the question is just get as prepared as you can, right? Yeah, and, and we, of course, are encouraging our residents as well um, to clear up any uh, debris around their properties, uh, their patio furniture and all those things, of course, that we've enjoyed all summer need to be secured. Um, we've also got a lot of, like I said, it's a very green city. So we have a lot of big trees. A lot of those are on private property as well. So where possible, we're asking residents to, you know, take care of any, uh, any suspect branches or old trees that might have, uh, that might cause trouble. Uh, but the other thing is we're urging our residents to call in anything they see. We have a 24 hour line for, for our, uh, um, public work staff. Uh, so we can get on top of any, any time they see, you know, a tree down that's causing problems, or if there's flooding happening um, or water going where it shouldn't, uh, we'll have crews, a lot of staff on this weekend. Um, you know, we want to be Johnny on the spot when it comes to dealing with that water to limit any damage that's going to happen. So I guess for the next 72 hours, it's really all hands on deck in Cornerbrook and in many other parts of Atlantic Canada, of course. Yeah, and uh, again, it seems that we we don't quite know how it's going to hit us. Uh, we're definitely not going to get hit as hard as other parts of Atlantic Canada, I fear. Uh, and so, you know, our uh, our uh, thoughts go out to our colleagues uh, in southwestern Newfoundland, in particular, uh, but as well in the Maritimes. Uh, it definitely looks they're going to ha- like they're going to take a direct hit before we do. And just the mood. I mean, you've dealt with bad weather before, but I guess when one sees something like this approaching, everyone's everyone starts to talk about it, right? You don't know where it's going, but we have an idea of where it's headed. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm seeing uh, a lot of uh, people preparing, uh, which is good. Um, but there, uh, I just came from the grocery store, um, and uh, the grocery store is packed. So people are uh, digging in for the weekend. Um, it's this time of year, of course, it's still fairly warm. Uh, so power outages and those things don't present the same life threatening problem that they do in other parts of the year. Uh, but, uh, people are definitely, uh, you know, hunkering down and, uh, it's not their first rodeo. So, uh, they're, they're getting ready for sure. Well, I wish you the best. I wish the entire community the best of luck, Jim. Thank you so much for your time tonight. No, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Well, let's head to Australia now. This was a story that caught my attention. I was traveling back from the UK over the past couple of days, and uh, this is obviously something that's being talked about a lot. Nearly 200 stranded pilot whales have died on Tasmania's west coast. The rescuers did successfully return 32 animals to deeper water on Thursday, but a pot of about 230 pilot whales became stranded on Wednesday, and marine conservationists, of course, launched that rescue mission. Uh, And here is Associated Press reporter Karen Shemas with some more on that. When first found, half of the 230 whales beached on shore were believed to be alive. By the next morning, less than three dozen managed to survive the pounding surf overnight. Wildlife manager for the area, Brendan Clark, said the rescue operation for the remaining 35 was a success. Oh, it's worked very effectively, our operations today. At least 32 of the 35 animals that are still alive have been refloated, rescued and released. Marine scientist Vanessa Pirotta says although there are many theories, the reason behind the strandings are still a mystery. This is actually the second stranding in Tasmania this week. Earlier there was 14 sperm whales which is a different species of of whale and um, unfortunately they've stranded as well but yet what what is going on? We don't actually know. I'm Karen Chamas. Well joining me now from Brisbane is Olaf Meinecke. He's of Griffith University's Coastal and Marine Research Centre. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me Ben. This was quite, uh, I mean, this was quite the story. And this is not, there's been two this week. I gather they're very different. But do we know what's going on? Um, yeah, so I don't quite follow in the steps of uh, my colleague who who made a, a comment there uh, to the press mm-hmm. earlier. Um, we, we definitely know that there is uh, a, a pattern of pilot whales to strand. We know why they're stranding in those uh, sort of well traps, which are these bays for them because the echolocation doesn't work. So the, the actual stranding process for the pilot whales, that is actually some reoccurring issue and it happened for thousands of years, but unfortunately, uh, we do see an increase of these strandings, um, and it could be related to some change of migration patterns. These animals are coming closer to shore to look for food at certain times of year, putting them at higher risk. Um, the more concerning uh, stranding is actually uh, the, the stranding of the sperm whales because they do That's not right. mass strand. Uh, and so this is what kind of triggers me to think both are feeding, um, both species are feeding on similar prey, and they're both feeding in, in those uh, continental shelf areas areas in offshore regions but at the end of the winter it can be that they're searching or chasing prey and this might have gotten them closer to these islands of course to be able to strand an island in in the middle of gigantic ocean is is more than just a coincidence uh the animals have to be very close to the island to actually strand there and for the sperm whales i'm concerned that they were probably in bad physical condition to strand all in the same location and 14 of them we had a similar case uh in europe with 29 whales 2016 and we know that there was a climate driven pattern a food search uh, for them to go into the north sea and that trapped them there and they were in bad physical condition most of them um were not well Right. So, I mean, so, so just the way, I mean, sometimes it's not about the sheer numbers because obviously the pilot whales stranding was a much larger group of whales. And I realize the rescue effort going on over the past 24 hours has been 48 hours at this point, I guess, in Australia has really been focused on trying to rescue them. So maybe if we start there, um, this has happened before. I gather there was a huge mass, there was a mass stranding uh, back a few years ago that was quite well known. What happens? The pilot whales follow each other. Is that right? Yeah, so the the story 
story is um, a bit more complex. So they're actually one of the smartest um, mammals we have on the planet, including the sperm whale. So it's not that they're just randomly sperm in the ocean and suddenly hit the island and then just all strand. So because the pilot whales are starting to aggregate for mateship, uh, this is the start of the uh, breeding season for them. And they will form these really big superpods as an advantage of actually mixing the genetic potential. So there is a strategy there that obviously has worked. Um, the issue there is that because they're quite close in their actual uh, subgroups, they know each other, they're like, everyone knows uh, each other by calls. When they're in such big groups, they don't know each other. And there's calls there that they haven't recognized. And so if there is a distress situation, uh, compare it to us going to a concert and panic starts for some reason and people start just running without actually thinking. So conscious decisions are not really being made. And that that's actually this, this chain effect that happens. They're following some of their friends and family members into the bay that might just be two or three, but they also have calls and they call for help and then others might get confused um, and they uh, enter that bay as well. And it's this chain effect that then all these animals entering the bay. And at that stage, they're in this confusion where they can also not navigate with their echolocation in the shallow and sandy waters. It's been quite the rescue effort at least over the past while well, I gather they've managed to save some but but not nearly enough obviously no and with pilot whales unfortunately the story is usually that it's uh 90% or so uh, will usually not survive um it's still a success to say that 32 have been able to be successfully you know released or 35 but i think three or so try to return um and so it's still worth rescuing these animals and it's actually an interesting uh, follow-up of course will these animals survive and how do they integrate in you know in other parts like they can't survive by themselves so you know they they likely will either form their own group uh, for hunting or maybe join other groups so there's you know that interesting effect or like um, you know what's happening once they're being released because it's nice to release but we obviously want to know if it's successful yeah i mean they're incredibly com as you've pointed out they're incredibly complex animals right i mean they're they're re remarkably complex animals so i, I think it's I, I guess as a, a layperson when you see these mass strandings, it, it's it's shocking in in many ways because you think, how could that happen? Do we and you were mentioning it earlier, we have we do have some concept of why it happens, but is it happening more or is it just because you had that very large one in Australia a few years ago, back in 2020, I guess, and now there's this one? Are we seeing it more often or is it just because we're paying attention to it, paying attention to it more, perhaps? Um, overall, there hasn't really been seen an increase of pilot whale stranding. There has been an increase of stranding of whales around the globe. There is, that's 100% sure. But those strandings, obviously, it's different species and it's often related to um, bad physical conditions, starvation, or they've been entangled in robes um, or ingesting plastic like sperm whales have washed up with plastic ingested. So these are new factors. Um, and of course, there's also the issue of noise pollution, not just the, the actual you know, pollution by plastic and, and fishing gear. So, you know, there is that increase and that's that's a fact. Um, but with the pilot whale strandings, those mass strandings have occurred in the regions, um, yeah, over a long period of time. And so far, there hasn't been uh, a 
significant increase. Um, but we are, of course, worried that with food shortages, these animals are more likely to take higher risk. Um, and, you know, this this can lead to uh, situations like that where they're just close to shorelines or coastlines where they get entrapped. And New Zealand is, uh, you know, is classic uh, for, for that. You know, the majority of pilot whales actually get stranded in New Zealand. Right. How do you rescue them? I mean, we have, I'm in Victoria, so we have, we have resident and transient orcas around us uh, that we see relatively often. Um, there's, but, but how do you rescue these animals once they strand? It's not easy. I mean, there's still a small, a small dolphin species compared to a sperm whale. Um, uh, they are still weighing about three ton. And so they can't easily be moved. You have to wait for tidal water to come in so that it's actually possible to slowly move them back into the water. Um, they are one of the you know, uh, larger dolphin species, of course. And so uh, they can't be on land for too long because they're crushing their own to their own weight, but they can survive for a couple of hours. So the, the thing is to wait for the tide to come back and then try and drag them back in, uh, cover them up um, until the tide uh, comes in so that they don't dry out, the skin doesn't get dry. Um, and in some cases, there's also uh, uh, floating or pontoons that can be used, which is quite helpful in particular, uh, if the animals are so heavy, like those three tons animal, those pontoons then help to lift up the animal and you can easy uh well e more easily drag them into open water and this actually has to be done they have to be taken further away from the the shallow waters because um as we just discussed they can't navigate in these shallow waters so they have to be in deeper waters to be able to actually find uh their their way out olaf monica is with us this half hour from brisbane in australia we're talking about i don't know if you've seen the headlines this week about 230 uh, a pod of pilot whales became stranded in Tasmania on Wednesday, Australia. It's Friday there now. Um, Olaf was also mentioning a, a smaller pod of sperm whales becoming stranded as well, which is more uncommon and probably, as you're saying, of more concern. Why would that be? And what does it tell us about what, what broader picture does it paint about whale health in our oceans these days? Yeah, Ben. So the yeah, it's the sperm whale stranding that actually has me more concerned than the the mass stranding of the pilot whales. Yes, we're only looking at fourteen animals, but uh, in general, sperm whale strandings is one or two individuals, and they're generally also not in good conditions when they strand. Um, we only had a few of those largest mass strandings of sperm whales, and one was in two thousand sixteen in Europe. But even there, uh, the the group was uh, kind of scattered, or the end of Animals were scattered throughout the North Sea over different countries, but here they all ended up on King Island, very close to each other. Um, it looks like it was a loose group of uh, of younger males, and it's it's not uncommon for them to form these loose groups and venture through the ocean in search of uh, uh, new groups that they can uh, connect with, and then you know at some point uh, also find uh, mating possibilities. So the question is whether these animals were actually starving and in what conditions they were. And um, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any necropsies uh, undertaken at the moment. So that means looking at the gut content and trying to actually assess the health of these animals. Um, 
but that would be an interesting question to ask what is what's the conditions of these animals and why why did they end up there because to for for a large animal like this to strand on on a on a beach or on a rocky shore they have to be very close to the shoreline and generally all of the whales are like dying offshore and we never see them um and so of course when we look at the entire ocean we've got a lot of threats that are coming in that are much more complex than the whaling issue whaling was easy compared to what we have now we could have just we just stopped whaling and we knew the whales would come back but now we've got these um these complex issues that are you know like entanglements and noise pollution and general water pollution uh shortages of food supply um and so there is there's these issues that we can't easily tackle um to ensure that we actually save our marine mammals for future generations yeah i mean where i am we have i was as i was mentioning we have the resident the resident orcas which is a you know, there's a lot of concern about what's happening with them as well. And I guess there's also a lot of mystery, but we don't fully understand. We understand that there are impacts of things that are happening, but I gather we don't fully understand what the impacts are. I mean, entanglements, obviously, plastic, I guess we, we know too. But other things are going on too in terms of changing feeding, you know, changing feeding patterns in terms of where they're going, as well as noise pollution that I think we're just beginning to understand. Is that right? That's right. And um, I, I'm strongly focused on humpback whales, uh, which is a baleen uh, species, so quite different from, from the toothed whales that just recently stranded. Uh, but the adapt adaptation to changes are obviously similar. They will look for new uh, food opportunities. Um, and we know the humpback whales around the world and all populations have changed their behaviors and they're starting to just, well, they're starting to go to alternative uh, feeding areas. They're also arriving later and earlier at the feeding grounds and breeding grounds so there's a shift of timing when there are and we know from north america actually from the west coast that they're entering uh, in in heat waves that they're entering fishing grounds that they used to not actually go to and now there is this problem that we've got more entanglements of them because they're actually in fishing grounds where they didn't used to go but they need to go there because they just don't have the food um, that they used to find in the arctic water so um you know there's a trend here that we can see around the globe that is is that there's a shift happening and these animals are intelligent so we know that they will find um solutions to these problems and actually you know when people ask me so you know what's the impact of where of climate uh change on whales i'm like well we could also see the other way what can we learn from these animals on how to adapt to climate change because the ocean is actually changing more drastically than land even though we don't see it but we've uh you know we've seen uh changes in currents and systems that are actually impacting the land uh, and it's always the other way around the, the ocean impacts the land not the land the uh the ocean that much so um, you know, there's there's change happening uh, amongst the whales uh, that is uh, quite interesting to study and to to learn from. But obviously, you know, we need to adapt also on, on how we can protect these animals, like shifting marine protection areas and um, and changing, uh, you know, the timing for fisheries, which is exactly what happened um, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, recently. I, I, as you mentioned, uh, they are going to adapt, right? Or try to find try to find a way to adapt, even as we try to find a way to better protect them. And and I guess that's what we're seeing happen now. We're seeing larger, uh, at least on the west coast of North America, where I am, we're seeing larger migration patterns at different times of year. And it's happened quite quickly, which is, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, which is probably cause for concern too. 
It does happen very fast. I mean, we can see the changes of the last five, uh, five to eight years, basically. I mean, uh, you know, we've, we've been observing and monitoring the whales here on the east coast of Australia for the last 13 years. And we only really started to see changes happening last five to eight years. So where, you know, we, we've got carvings, uh, so newborn calves being born way south from the actual traditional breeding areas. And, and all these things are signs of uh, adapting to reducing uh, energy need for, for migration so that they reduce you know, the time they need to get to, from feeding to breeding grounds. So um, definitely there is, there is something happening. And, and I think, you know, the pilot well strandings will always be an issue regardless of climate change and all other issues issues but if you're adding you know noise pollution and uh gas and oil exploration as that you know impacting some of the feeding grounds then of course that's not going to be helping them so well Olaf Baneke thank you so much for your time tonight I appreciate your insight and always nice to get a perspective from uh from far away when we do have our our, our whale issues here too on the west coast of Canada and on the east coast obviously absolutely thanks so much for having me Ben <laughs> Well, as you may know, I was away for most of the last week and a bit. I was in London covering the death of the Queen, the ascension of King Charles III. It was a, it was it was quite the experience. Just something to see, to watch history go by like that was was truly extraordinary. You feel privileged to be able to be there to talk about it, to talk to people about it, and that was probably the part of it that was the most um, the most striking was just how much people wanted to talk about the Queen, what she meant to them. Uh, what she meant to their families, how she was woven into the fabric of their family histories, and so forth. Um, and that part of it was was, you know, that that part of it was was touching actually to talk to people about it because it was so much. It was about so much more than the monarchy and the royal family. It was about people's families, about people's lives, about the passage of time, about the end of an era, about the end of generations, about generations passing on, and what they leave behind, and the memories they leave behind, and what happens when they're gone. And I think the Queen at 96 was became that sort of symbol of a generation that was disappearing. And now that she's gone, she was sort of the last vestige of it for many people who had already lost parents or grandparents over the past while. Needless to say, when someone of her stature passes, um, there is always a bit of a clamor for things that feature them. And very few people was, were featured on more things than the late queen, 33 currencies in all around the world. Well, collectors, it turns out, have been scrambling to secure rare coins and bills bearing her likeness, um, even though her portrait will, will really be in circulation for many, many more years to come. Bills last longer. We don't use them as much. Coins, obviously, too. So we're going to be we're going to have Queen Elizabeth on our money for a very long time to come. Still, there has been a lot of demand for some of the rarer ones, including some Canadian ones, uh, a pre-World War II or Second World War Canadian $20 bill featuring Elizabeth as a child, uh, Australia's Platinum Jubilee 50-cent coin. There have been a bunch out there that are on high demand these days. We wanted to find out a bit more about that. And to do so, joining me now is Peter Hutchison. He's a senior coin specialist at Hattons of London. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's funny just how much I think people, especially in countries like Canada, where the you know where the Queen was has been on our currency for most of our lifetimes, people who are who are of a certain age don't know anything else. There's been a lot of questions about well, what happens now, uh, and I think in the UK, obviously the UK being uh, the one area, or England specifically, the one area will that be the most uh, the most acute. Uh, but what does happen when there is the death of a monarch? Uh, well, first thing is to be assured that the 
the currency, the coinage and the banknotes, both here in Britain and in Canada are issued by the central bank. So, um, or the treasury as the case may be. So the, the money that's in circulation at the moment continues to have validity. Um, it just so happens that the, the Queen's portrait will be on it. And of course, the currency these days is designed to be quite durable. So these coins and notes are going to remain in circulation for quite some time yet to come. Um, there's no need because the, the um, denominations of the coins and notes isn't going to change. There's no need to call the, call the currency in and, and change it over, um, which may have happened if, if the currency system was changing. Um, but what will begin now and what has probably already begun last week is a process to create a portrait of the new king, King Charles III. Um, so the, all we've got to go by is uh, what's happened in the past and typically um, a small group, probably only two or maybe three accomplished portrait designers will be asked to submit some initial sketches or proposals. Um, and then a committee, uh, which is made up of people from the, the British Treasury, from the palace itself and from the Royal Mint uh, here, will um, view this and make a determination. And either one or two of those designed designers will be asked to continue their work on a portrait uh, of the king. Um, and at that point, they'll then be given, um, they're usually given a sitting with the king himself. Um, and as you can imagine, there's so much going on at the moment with the, uh, the accession of Charles III. This can often take quite some time to just get, get the time in the, in the new monarch's diary to make this happen. So typically going on what's happened um, in, in the past, these portraits can take between three and six months to, to be created and to then start appearing on currency. As you mentioned, I mean, when I think back even to 20 years ago, the, the, the shelf life of a, of a banknote was, was quite short. And these days, of course, with all the plastification and so on, um, the banknotes are pretty durable. It could take quite a while, for instance, for a country such as Canada or Australia or New Zealand, who all have very similar notes now, uh, to actually start to have to bring those out of circulation and put new ones in. Well, and even even Britain's in the process that they're down to the last note that the largest note in the series is about to become a polymer note. Mm -hmm. So these polymer notes are designed to last 10 years, if not 15. Um, another sort of consequence of um, the global uh, pandemic and all the lockdowns is that people are now more used to using their cards, chip and pin and, and you know, waving the the chip and pin cards. So the whole speed of circulation of, of currency cash in society has slowed right down. So the, the mints and the central banks are finding that currency is lasting a lot longer now um, and they've stepped up the durability. So coins typically 20 to 25 years and, and notes 10 to 15 years. Um, so yes, the queen's face is going to be staring back at us for quite some time, I think. I remember even back as a child, we would still get the odd King George penny uh, in Canada, and this is in the 70s, right, which was uh, quite a while, quite a while, actually not even, if you think back, I guess it wasn't actually that long a time before, but we could see that again here, I imagine, we could still obviously have coins circulating in 20 years if we're still using them um, with the Queen's, with the Queen's portrait on. It's, it's entirely possible 
depending on how long, of course, Charles reigns, but it's entirely possible we may see three generations of coins again. As, as you said, the coins of George V and George VI and then Queen Elizabeth, we may see that again with Elizabeth Charles and uh, William when he exceeds. But let's not get ahead of ourselves mm -hmm. talking about any future monarchs. We've just, just got ourselves a new one. So. A new one. Is, there, is there ever any, any pressure to sort of circulate the bills faster when there is a new monarch in place? I mean, there is obviously an idea that, that perhaps the new monarch should be on the money. We haven't even had that conversation in this country yet, really. Um, but that that we would speed up the circulation, because as you mentioned, it takes a very long time now for banknotes to uh, to live out their shelf lives. It's it's probably the opposite. Um, the the uh, Britain and Canada will be the same. We'll be sitting on um, advance stocks, not not a huge amount, but they always produce currency in advance of the requirement so that when it's when it's called on by the banking system it's there available to be released so there we know there are there are stocks of circulating coins and notes sitting here in britain waiting uh for release i'll, I'll assume it's the same uh with the bank of canada so um <clears throat> it's it's possible that uh they're not going to simply destroy those uh, notes and coins because the monarch has changed um, and of course that will give them the time to undertake the design process um, the mint may also take the opportunity to look at changing the designs on the reverse side so the other side of the coins um, and as you alluded to there there are there are countries canada probably australia maybe new zealand that may consider removing the portrait of the monarch uh, from currency so um so the, those discussions need time to take place. Um, and in, in fact, um, in Australia, I think it requires a referendum of the, of the people, so a full public vote. My guest this half hour is Peter Hutchison. He's a senior coin specialist at Hattons of London. We're talking about the impact of the death of the Queen and the uh, the ascension of King Charles III on currency in general. And as Peter was explaining, it could take quite some time before we start to see um, the new king on our currency, at least commonly, uh, bills are much more durable than they used to be. Coins have always been relatively durable, so it could take some time, and there is no real rush for it to happen. Obviously, the currency is still legal tender um, for now and, and forever in that sense. Um, you were mentioning that there's been a surge. I saw, I saw an interview that you did. That there's been a big surge in demand or from collectors of some of the more uh, coveted images of, of of Queen Elizabeth, even Princess Elizabeth on notes. Uh, how is that? How does that work so far? Uh, well, of course, the Queen Elizabeth reigned for such a long period of time. It, it seemed as if it magically may have just gone gone on and on and on. Um, and I think a lot of people were um, caught. A lot of collectors, anyway, were caught assuming they'd have as, as long as they needed to uh, acquire whatever they wanted for their collection. So there's been a, a sudden uh, boom, certainly here in Britain, and I can assume it will be in Canada as well, for any of the, um, the rarities. So any of these coins or notes that are known to be hard to get already um, and, and or um, are already treasured by collectors and, and bid up at auctions. So this... Yeah, we've we've seen uh, an incredible uptake in um, in in people contacting us at Hattons of London and saying they're they're seeking a particular rare British gold coin or whatnot of Elizabeth II. Um, so it's been it's been a, a 
hectic uh, last week. Um, yeah. yeah, the number I saw you mentioned was 45-fold, which seems like an astounding amount of, of calls to be fielding uh, about. Are you, are you able to find? the? Are they out there to be had? Well, no, and of course, the, inevitably, these people are after some of the, the harder things to find. So what, what, in some respects, we don't want is a lot more people looking for them and suddenly looking for them. Um, but that's, that's really what's happened. So uh, we've seen um, there, there are some issues that were released earlier this year that may have already increased in uh, value by 10 to 12 percent. Um, they're proving hard to get anyway, which is why their value has increased in the first place. But now that more people are chasing them, um, I'm just not sure where that's, where those sorts of things are going to head. Um, presumably, they'll increase in price even further. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. As a, no, not at all. As a reminder to people, the Queen appeared on 33 currencies around the world, which according to the Guinness World Book of Records is a world record. What are some of the more, um, you mentioned some of the more coveted ones. I gather there are some Canadian ones amongst them, but some some very interesting, people may not even be familiar with some of these, even in the countries where these were produced. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the rarer coins are released uh, specifically for collectors. Um, so if, if you're, if you're in the, the general public often aren't exposed to them unless you happen to see um, a press ad or a TV commercial advertising them. But a lot of these, a lot of these things don't require advertising. There's such an appetite um, in a lot of the countries that the, the Queen's head appears on the currency for uh, these limited edition, um, you know, it can often be a, a Canadian coin, but instead of struck in its ordinary uh, basic metal, it'll be struck in silver and limited to an edition of 10 or 15 or 20,000. And these numbers are not very large. Um, and when you find they sell out when they're first released, that means there's not a lot of them left for anyone new that may come into the market afterwards. And that that's what we're now seeing. We're seeing uh, it, upsurge of people that are saying, "Real look, you know, I've got some, I've got some holes in in this collection I'm building, and I want to fill them, and I want to fill them now." Um, and the holes they have are usually these these rare editions that have sold out when they were first released. Yeah, so, the, yeah, the, a few that caught my eye. I wasn't aware of the fact that they that there had been a a Canadian pre World War Second World War Canadian twenty dollar bill featuring Elizabeth. Uh, Princess Elizabeth as a child. I, I didn't know that existed. I just, I just looked it up. I mean, it is, it is indeed what it's described as, but I gather that would be something that, that is coveted. That's going to be incredibly sought after. And there's, there's only a handful of instances. Britain itself doesn't have anything with any currency issue with the Princess Elizabeth on it. But as you mentioned, Canada's got that note. And I think Australia had a stamp that they issued um, just after the war with the young princess on it. So these these things that were issued before her reign are incredibly sought after. Um, and then, of course, we've got all the, the, the sequence of currency issued during her reign. There was one, too, a 1954 one um, called the Devil's Head Note series, another that I hadn't yeah. heard of, uh, which, which has an even more sort of strange story behind why it's so coveted. Yeah, well, it's it's a... a just one of those remarkable things. The design was created, um, approved, went into production, and then after it was released into currency, into circulation, uh, some people started to realise that actually the, the waves in the in the Queen's hair 
looked a little bit like a, a ghoulish face. So it quickly became known as the devil's head, uh, the devil's head bill, and and has been popular ever since and sought after. And those are the sort of things that they're, they're limited in number. Um, they're, they're no longer available. And they already had a collector following and indeed a, quite a healthy collector premium. So that collector premium I can only see increasing quite dramatically now that the Queen has passed away and there's going to be a lot more people looking for those sorts of things. Are there many of them out there? For instance, the um, the pre-World, Second World War, Elizabeth is Princess Elizabeth, $20 bill and and uh, and, and this, the Devil's Head. Are there many out there in circulation? Or I would imagine they've been collected long ago by those who really wanted them. Yeah, they were issued such a long time ago. I think any of the any of the quantities that may have existed, anyone who may have put aside ten or fifteen or twenty notes at the time would have come to the market by now and been sold through auction or whatnot. Um, but the other thing about notes is they tend they have quite a quite a high purchasing power anyway, and people often can't afford to put you can't afford to put a hundred of these notes aside. So. Right. Um, Rare notes tend not to turn up in, in large numbers anyway. Um, but as you mentioned, these are now so old that any quantities that may have been out there will have been identified as being valuable and will have probably come up for sale. Peter Hutchison, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. The U.S. is calling on other nations in the U.N. Security Council to tell Russia to stop making nuclear threats and to end the horror of its war in Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Putin has a choice to end this conflict. One man chose this war. One man can end it. Because if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. Meantime, pro-Moscow authorities in four Russian-held regions of Ukraine are planning voter referendums on becoming part of Russia starting tomorrow. Those are in the provinces of Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk. Um, here is British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly speaking to the UN Security Council. Our information clearly shows the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense are directing plans to hold sham referenda in uh, the Ukrainian sovereign ter territory in an attempt to annex those territories. This is, of course, what Russia did back in 2014 with Crimea as well. Meantime, protests are spreading out across Russia over Vladimir Putin's draft order, mobilizing up to 300,000 Russians to join the fight in Ukraine. More than 1,300 Russians were arrested in those demos, according to a human rights group. And lineups apparently have sprung up along Russia's border as men attempt to leave the country, either by car or by plane, in any way they can to avoid having to go fight in that war. Well, joining me now is Emily Ferris. She's a research fellow in the International Security Studies Department at Royal United Services Institute in London and a specialist in Russian domestic politics. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been quite the day. I think we were all waiting to see what the reaction internally would be to this mobilization, this partial mobilization. What do you make of it? We've seen stories of people trying to get out of the country and so forth. Um, is there is there a panic going on, do you think? Well, I mean, there's certainly been a very strong reaction domestically. Um, what we've seen is protests pretty much across major cities in Russia. So obviously, uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg as the biggest uh, kind of 
hubs or, or, or population hubs in Russia will have will have the largest protests uh, most of the time, the more people. Um, but we've also got protests across Siberian places, uh, in places like Yekaterinburg, which is uh, you know the capital uh, of the regional capital of the Ural Mountains. Um, and there's been quite a lot of people detained as well by the um, security services. And there are actually also um, suggestions that once people have been detained, they're sent directly to the conscription office. Um, somewhat obviously, you know, de defeating the purpose of those people protesting against that conscription itself. So um, certainly it seems that the authorities are cracking down enormously on, on internal protests. And we also saw movement, or at least we're hearing anecdotally in reports of people heading to the border trying to get out, which is also obviously going to be difficult. Yes, I mean, what, what we've seen is there's been a, a bit of a crash in terms of of uh, websites of flights trying to get out. Um, but at the same time, I think obviously it, it makes for a rather sensationalist news story uh, where you see sort of queues at the border, but actually e even the, the Finnish border agencies have said that actually um, there aren't huge queues at the border of, of people rushing to get out. And although there, there certainly are people that will want to leave, I don't think we can call this yet um, a sort of extensive brain drain in that way. Um, a lot of people did leave Russia um, when the war started. A lot of IT professionals, um, a lot of people who worked in international companies uh, tended to move to places like Armenia and Turkey, uh, and if they could, Europe um, or Israel, given that there's a, a visa-free regime between Israel and Russia at the moment. Um, so I think a lot of people did make their move originally, uh, and I think that it, it's more than likely that at the moment there's this kind of panic, um, but I'm sure it's probably going to subside in, in the next few weeks. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the timing, because it felt from the outside, at least, that there had been very little uh, dissent as far as this war was concerned. Things weren't going particularly well of late uh, in eastern Ukraine, around around the south and the east. Why decide now to make this announcement? Why come? Why did the President Putin come out yesterday for the first time to talk about this after things seem to be, they seem to have a fairly good lid on it, at least domestically, and now we've seen these protests again? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. Um, the first is uh, obviously the Ukrainian counteroffensive that happened a few days ago where, where they took back quite a lot of territory. And I think that was seen as a little bit of a weakness on, on the Russian military side. But I would be a bit cautious, I think, in maybe uh, underestimating the Russian military and I think possibly um, you know, too soon thinking that they, they'll be quite easily defeated. Uh, the Russians have made it very clear that they're, you know, unfortunately in for the long haul. Uh, and this has become a complete existential crisis for Russia. Uh, the kind of rhetoric that, that the political administration is talking in at the moment, which seems almost religious, um, makes it really difficult to, to try to reason um, with them in a sort of diplomatic way um, and to talk about, uh, you know, political engagement, really. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, things like the uh, the referendums as well um, that are happening at the moment in four different areas across Ukraine, um, this was something that had been discussed uh, for the last few months. And then that talk seemed to have died down a little bit. And then they've had to resurrect it again. Um, and I think part of the reason was because they did feel that they needed to Russia, I mean, uh, needed to kind of suddenly stake its its official claim over those regions. And there was a little bit of concern, I think, within the Kremlin that Russia was not going far enough. Uh, in pushing into, into Ukraine. And I think Putin was coming under quite a bit of pressure from hardliners within his government and a lot of the more hawkish officials to, to really, you know, not just accept these increments of territory in Eastern Ukraine, but really push as far as he could. So this is, I think, a little bit of a nod to those people uh, for Putin.
It's interesting to watch from the outside because one imagines having begun this war, uh, you know, in the winter that the the objective was regime change, Kiev. It was broad, and now it feels like there, there's almost a struggle going on for territory, most of which was already theirs. I mean, de facto, for for a long time, and whether it was Donetsk or Luhansk and those areas. So, so, what exactly is going on inside the Kremlin now? Because whatever the rhetoric you're seeing on TV, clearly. What's happening on the ground seems entirely disassociated with with this sort of with the rhetoric that we're hearing from from, from officials and specifically from state media. Well, I think you've hit on exactly the problem, um, which is the the disparity between strategy and implementation that the Kremlin has. So, as you exactly say, the aims at the beginning were clearly regime change in in Kiev uh, to be replaced by a, a Moscow or pro Moscow entity. Um, and pretty much take over of the whole of the whole of Ukraine. Uh, and the Russians underestimated, um, they thought that would be a very easy thing to do. It turns out it wasn't. Um, and then they had to scale down their goals. And they suggested that actually the South and the Southeast uh, were, were always very important uh, parts to take over. Part of the reason being, obviously, because they've already captured Crimea. What's really important to them would be the southern uh, bit of Ukraine, that they could create a land bridge um, that would bridge Crimea and mainland Ukraine. Um, but then once that had become really difficult, especially very difficult to take over places like Odessa, and they never really managed to get uh, particularly close to it, but it's a really important logistical hub. And if you control the railways um, in, in this part of Europe, then you, you pretty much control huge amounts of transport networks, ferrying food and people and supplies. Um, so that was really uh, an important aim that they didn't manage to do. Um, so then they've now started talking, um, as you say, about the Donbass, which is pretty much um, you know, the two regions in the east, most of which, um, of course, they, they did get in 2015, uh, 2014, 2015. Um, so as Putin said most recently uh, in, in the speech the other day, um, he reiterated the aims of the war were now to take over the Donbass region, um, which seems a massive deviation from, from the beginning, uh, which was, of course, the whole, the whole of the territory. Um, but what we're seeing here is, is on, in terms of what's happening on the ground versus what the Kremlin is talking about, I think there is a bit of a, a culture in, in Russia of not really wanting to, to give bad news to the leader. And some of what, what people have seen as the intelligence failings of the Ukraine war on the Russian side um, is that plenty of people uh, at the the lowest ranks within the Russian military, within the Russian intelligence agencies, knew perfectly well um, that the Ukrainians would uh, resist any kind of Russian attempt to annex the country, knew pretty well what some of them, the really serious military problems the Russians would be likely to encounter given their capabilities, given, uh, yeah, given their capabilities, but they were very unwilling to pass that bad news up the ranks. Um, and it's very difficult within the Russian Ministry of Defense. There's a, a kind of a culture of, of passing that responsibility up the chain. And so what you get at the end for, for Putin and the people closest to him is a rather sanitized version of the truth. And with that, they are making quite major decisions. So obviously the disparity between the, the evidence um, that I think they probably don't really have a lot of access to and the big strategies that they are they are coming up with, you know, the policymakers within the Kremlin, I think those two things are not very well matched. My guest is Emily Farish. She's a research fellow in the International Security Studies Department at Royal United Services Institute in London, a specialist in Russian domestic politics. Uh, Emily, I mean, we, we've heard a lot of talk of this sort of nuclear saber rattling. You pointed out in, in a piece that you wrote for Rusi today, that's not new. 
that the, the talk of sort of the nuclear option is not new. How worried should we be? Because I was just in London, and people obviously in London are worried because it's close by. I think sometimes over here in North America, perhaps we don't see it as closely as you do. I think it's reasonable to to have a degree of concern when it comes to the kind of threats that Mr. Putin is making. Um, you know, when I say it's not new, it's it's certainly clear that he's gone further in terms of, of his very stark rhetoric saying that this is not a bluff um, than he has before. But I think what I what I'd said in, in the piece originally was that um, in, in 2018, Putin had very clearly in a message to the West in, in a state of the nation address, exhibited some of Russia's latest, although he said latest, uh, although we're not too sure about those actual capabilities, uh, nuclear weaponry, and had warned the West that, that we collectively should be listening to Russia. And what that said to me at the time, I think, was that um, there was a perception in Russia that the West was not really listening to what they see as their national security interests, irrespective of, of whether we see those as in contravention of international law. Um, I think, you know, things like the, the uh, annexation of Crimea um, is, is what Russia kind of sees as part of its national security interests, but obviously we, we see that picture very differently. Um, and that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that Russia does, not at all. Um, and we can certainly point out when Russia does things that are absolutely unacceptable. But I think part of this is that we need to look a little bit behind some of the rhetoric that, that Putin is saying and try to understand really what he means. Um, and I think you know, he made it quite clear at the moment in this speech that even though if we, if we look beyond some of the, um, the rather aggressive statements that he's made about threatening the use of nuclear weapons, um, he is outlining what he believes to be Russia's national interests. And part of that is the four territories which are due to hold these referenda in the next couple of days. And the really difficult thing, and the, the thing I actually don't have an answer to, is... Um, if these territories, uh, and it looks highly likely that the referendum will be sort of pushed through, uh, they'll vote in a sort of sham election to join Russia, Russia will consider them Russian territory. And then if there's any kind of uh, pushback from the Ukrainian army, so any incursions, any attempts to take back that Ukrainian territory, the real question is, will Russia consider that to be an attack on Russian territory? And if so, does then that give them the license to respond in a, in a nuclear way? Um, at the moment, I don't think that there is actually appetite within the Kremlin for that kind of uh, zero-sum option. Um, it's been discussed around Kremlin circles quite a few times over the past couple of years when tensions between you know, Russia and, and NATO have kind of ratcheted up. Obviously, we're in a very, you know, we're in a wartime footing at the moment, so it's, you know, tensions are running extremely high. But I really do think that within the Kremlin, there isn't a huge amount of appetite for that level of escalation, which I think Russia kind of understands it would probably lose. Yeah, I mean, I, the time I spent reporting in Russia, I always, and this is, you have far more experience than I do, but I always felt there was a disconnect between what the elites are hoping to protect, which is money and power, versus who gets to die in the war, which is not them or their children, it would seem. I gather Dmitry Peskov's child was pranked today into thinking that uh, the army was calling him up and then said there was no way he was going to the front lines. Um, yeah. Where does that, where does that, I guess what I'm curious about, where does that disassociation start to fall apart between what's the decisions that are being made and the ability of that uber super elite in Russia to hang on to power? Because at some point, the divergence will have to be pretty pretty stark. And it feels like that's happening now between the idea of sending people off to war to die, which few, I imagine, want to do for, for Mother Russia, and this, you know, sort of the kind of rhetoric we're seeing coming out of the Kremlin. 
I mean, part of the problem is that obviously we're, we're seeing these protests now. There were protests at the beginning of the war, but in between, the, the repressive legislation in Russia is so effective that it is really difficult for Russians to express their points of view. So, you know, there's been a huge clampdown on what you can say in the media, um, even things on, on, on social media, sharing posts, liking posts, um, any kind of discussion about the armed forces, for example, there was a new piece of legislation that was brought in just after the war started um, that punishes with imprisonment any kind of talk that in, in Russian terms discredits um, the armed forces. And that could be anything, really. These, these pieces of legislation are hugely vague and sweeping on purpose. I mean, there's been quite a lot, several hundred, I think, cases brought under that piece of legislation. So this is not a, you know, to use Putin's phrase, not a bluff. Emily Ferris, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight. Pleasure.